and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our parable today is uh, interesting, to say the least. The main character, the, the steward, his actions don't seem to be very good. He doesn't seem to be very commendable. In fact, he's widely known as the unrighteous steward. At the beginning of the story, he's accused of wasting his master's possessions, squandering them like the prodigal son squandered his inheritance. True or not, he's fired for it. His master comes to him and says, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Well, now the steward's in trouble, and he starts thinking to himself, what shall I do? He doesn't have very many options. He's about to be put out of house and home. So he thinks maybe digging is the answer, but the steward has no illusions about his strength. He is too weak to dig. It seems his only other option is to become a beggar, but he is too ashamed. He is too proud a man to beg. He thinks for a moment, and then he decides. He says, I know what I shall do. I've seen the one way out. And when we read what happens next, it looks like he just cheats his master. He calls in his master's debtors and slashes their bills by 50%, by 20%. And then at the end of the story, the master commends him and says, good job. That was wise. That was very clever of you. Again, little seems commendable about what the steward has done. Why did his master commend him for these actions? Well, what the steward did was clever. It puts his master in a very awkward position. He could go after those debtors and say, now that steward that you talked to at that point in time, I had already fired him. He had no authority to be messing with your bills, so I'm sorry, but you're going to owe the whole amount when it comes due. Now, if you've ever been shopping and you get something off of the clearance rack and you take it up to the cashier and the cashier charges you full price, you might start to understand how those debtors might feel about that master. But the master has another option, the one that the steward really hopes that he's going to take. He could just let it lie, take the financial hit, and be regarded by his debtors as a kind and generous man. And the steward hopes that his debtors will also remember who it was that told them to slash their bills, so that when he's put out of house and home, they will remember, ah, that steward of that merciful master. I want to have mercy on him in return. He did me a favor. It's only right that I repay. That is the wisdom and the cleverness that the master commends. But it still seems really odd. It seems like it shouldn't make a difference to the master whether the steward is squandering his wealth or whether the steward is forgiving the debts of his debtors. If the steward squanders the master's wealth, then the master loses money and the steward gains where if the steward is slashing these debts, the master still loses money, 
and the steward gains. So what's the difference? Why is one a fireable offense and the other an act worthy of commendation? Well, it's because the master knows something. Yes, he loses money in both situations, but money isn't the point. People are. The master knows to put people ahead of profits. And this is an eternal truth, that people are more important than money, and money should be used to have mercy on people. Losing some profits in order to gain friends is worth it. Now, the steward realized this in kind of a roundabout way, but his whole gambit only works if he's right, if the master is a kind and generous man. If the master was a cruel and hard man, then he would go after those debtors and require the full amount of them. And now the steward's in a worse position than when he started, because now those debtors will remember him not as the man who did them a favor, but as the man who lied to them. And they will, of course, regard the master as cruel and hard and unmerciful. But the steward, hopefully, has guessed right. He's recognized that his master is actually merciful. And in recognizing that mercy, the steward, too, has realized this truth about money. This is really the wisdom that the master is commending, that the stewards realized something comes before prophets and its people. Now, if those accusations at the beginning were true, and the steward was indeed wasting the master's money, then money was his master. Money was his ruler, because the point and the goal of money is to get more money and spend it on yourself. But the master's goal was to have mercy on his debtors. Those two things cannot both exist. They are opposed. In order to actually serve his master, the steward had to conquer and subdue money. He had to enslave money to his master's wishes rather than letting it rule him. This is why Jesus says after this parable that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So use money to serve God. Let the Lord be the Lord. Don't get these things twisted around and try to put the cart before the horse and serve money over God. Use money to God's ends. And God's ends are to be merciful. Now this parable does teach us truths about the small things, wealth, power, and money. But it also teaches us about the large things. It teaches us how God works. The earthly master in the parable realized that losing some profit was worth gaining a friend. But God doesn't go part way in the large things. He doesn't just cut our debts off by just a little bit. He doesn't give us a discount, cutting them in half, a quarter, or a third. He obliterates our debts. 
He absolutely erases his profit margins in order to gain friends, in order to gain brothers and sisters. Jesus gave up everything, coming down from heaven to become incarnate as a little baby in a manger. He walked the earth with us for 33 years and then died on the cross, giving up his very life for his friends, really for his family. God doesn't see the world in profit margins. He sees the world in terms of real treasure. That real treasure is you, brothers and sisters in Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, we are like the steward. I mean, in the obvious sense, we are like the steward in that God has given us a portion of his wealth for this life, and we should manage it well. We should use our money for mercy. But we are like the steward in another way. At the beginning of the parable, the steward said that he was too weak to dig. It's as though he recognized that he was at the bottom of a pit. He couldn't even lift the shovel, but if he could, the only direction that he could go is down. We are the same. We cannot free ourselves from our own sinful condition, and any actions we can take of ourselves just digs ourselves deeper. But we are like the steward in another way. The steward recognized that his only option was to cast himself on the mercy of the master. He bet everything on the fact that his master was a kind and generous man. The steward said he was too ashamed to beg, but he was not ashamed to rely on the mercy of his master. But the steward was only dealing with the small things. So he only cut the debts in half. Because, I mean, really, everyone's mercy has a limit, and the master's mercy can't be that big, can it? But we are not dealing with the small things, not small debts, nor a small God. God's mercy is large. It is larger than any earthly master's mercy can be. Like the steward, we too see there's only one way out, and that way is relying on God's mercy. But we don't have to fall back on trickery, because we are not ashamed to beg. We come before God as weak and sickly beggars, offering nothing and relying entirely on his mercy. This is clearest in baptism, especially in the baptism of a baby. Babies, I'm not sure if you're aware, are too weak to dig. I don't know if you've given a shovel to an infant, but even if you gave them a backhoe, they're not going to dig you a ditch. Babies are simply too weak. But babies are not ashamed to beg. Ask any parent. Babies just beg. Waking up all hours of the day and night, begging to be fed and changed and comforted. All crying out to their parents for mercy. And with their childlike faith, they fully expect that mercy will be poured out on them. This is our condition before God. And at the font, especially when that child is baptized, God answers that baby's cries. 
And he answers them with water and word, with the sign and seal of his promise, with adoption as sons. In baptism, Jesus becomes your elder brother, and you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Here at the font, you do no work. You do not dig, for you are too weak. You only beg. And God's answer to you there is only mercy. Amen. Now may the peace of God that passes all human understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We rise to confess our faith in the words of the night school.